Hello everybody and welcome. It is good to be talking, to be having noise happen. So we finished dinner and I started reading Wikipedia about the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and clicking the links and looking at pictures and several hours of silence later, here I am. So it's kind of, you know, coming out of the fog of that good as it was going, oh yeah, Oh, people to talk to. Get out of this little bubble. So, uh, hi. Welcome. So today, only one day this time, but a, but a very full day, we began by going to the Garden of Gethsemane for Mass at 8 a.m. There is a lovely church built there. I think it's built by the same guy who did the Church of the Ascension. Um, not very much, but you can see some similar uh, architectural styles. Um but if that's wrong, it's not that close. So, you know, don't hold me to it, maybe. Uh, but it is a church built over, uh, not the Garden of Gethsemane itself, or at least not all of it, uh, because that would they would have had to cut down some lovely olive, some lovely important and old olive trees to do that. But it is over what we might call the Rock of the Passion. Uh, or it's the place where, remember when Jesus goes a stone's throw from the apostles to pray? It's the rock upon which he was uh, you know, doing his weeping of blood. Uh, you often see it in, in uh, images of that scene of that day. So it is the rock. And in fact, it, it's very profound in the church. You know, Often at these holy sites, the church or the altar, whatever, is built uh, so literally over the top of this place. Um, but in this case, this rock in question is literally exposed, open, right there on the floor you can you can lean down and touch the whole thing uh, or at least significant portion of it um which i wonder about the history of the church then because usually uh the thing of significance is buried having been built over by the byzantines in the fourth century and then the crusaders in the 12th century and then some modern church on top of that but this one doesn't seem to be that way i never thought about that before so maybe i should look into that maybe there's some uh, maybe this site wasn't found until very recently or decided upon until recently. Anyways, I don't know. But regardless, the uh, Rock of the Passion is right there to be uh, touched and prayed with right in front of the altar. Which, of course, if Jesus' Passion, or rather, uh, at Mass, we are re-participating in Jesus' Passion, including the Last Supper, Agony in the Garden, Death on the Cross. So how very appropriate to be having Mass literally right in front of the place where uh, Jesus wept his tears blood where he be- he began to give his blood well he began he gave it first at the last supper continued to give his blood uh culminating with giving it on the cross anyways uh one of the fascinating things about this rock is that if you look at it it's not naturally the way it was it has uh, some grooves cut into it and these grooves are consistent with it being used as an olive press naturally enough, given that it's right next to the Garden of Gethsemane, full of olive trees. So, um, you, you, you can see that it's uh, been modified ancient in an ancient way for this particular purpose. But that has a very uh, theological connection, too, because when you make olive oil, you bring your olives in, and you press them three times, that's how you get the, even today, the extra virgin olive oil, the virgin olive oil, and the regular olive oil. So that's not a new invention. Uh, But in this particular context, it makes for a poignant connection. Because remember, 
three times it was that Christ went to pray from the apostles. Remember, twice he comes back and finds them sleeping and then goes back to praying. And so if we remember, olive oil is used for anointing you know, of kings and such. And so Christ is, in a sense, anointed by being crushed in his prayer uh, three times in a row, just like the olives are pressed three times to extract the various grades of uh, the oil for anointing. So a nice little uh, theological connection there to uh, what's happening with Christ and a metaphor with the extraction of olive oil. Next, we moved on to a little place that I hadn't seen before. Uh, it's called it's a it's a, a grotto, which there's many of these around just due to the to the type of the rocks that there are, kind of little uh, small caves around. One of them, it's I don't remember the name of it, but it's the place where, according to, according to tradition, the apostles were hanging out, in a sense, falling asleep even, uh, where Jesus went, quote, a stone's throw away to go pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, it really is, it's literally across the street, so the stone's throw away part actually does make sense. And then, just right next to that, I guess in a, in a connected and larger grotto, uh, now enlarged into a, a, an obvious church, is, uh, well, it's called the Tomb of Mary, uh, which in Byzantine tradition makes sense, but in Catholic tradition doesn't. But it, it's, a, it's a Byzantine place. There's actually two different sides of it are maybe Coptic and Byzantine. I'm not sure. I'm not good at telling them apart. Anyways, uh, think of how a subway, subway station stairs goes down, you know, probably 60, 70 feet, uh, you know, down along 80, 80, 90 feet, even down a, down a set of stairs and then kind of has a crossways at the bottom. You know, it goes left or right in a subway tunnel. It actually is a lot like that. Um, you go down a pretty broad, wide set of stairs. Of course, being a Byzantine setup, there's lots of uh, hanging silver lamps and uh, dark oil paintings of images of saints, mostly Mary, of course. Um, but traditionally, it's the burial place of Mary's grand, Mary's parents, Jesus' grandparents, Saints Joachim and Anne. And also, uh, in Eastern tradition, the place where uh, Mary was buried and then was ascended into, ascended into heaven. It raises a little bit of a prickly spot for Catholics uh, because we don't... The Orthodox would say that Mary died in body, and then was taken up to heaven, body and soul. As Catholics, we don't affirm it one way or the other. When the Pope declared the dogma of that, uh, he didn't specify. He simply says, when her earthly life was completed, she was assumed into heaven. That could mean that just you know, right before she died, but, she, but yet she re- remained alive, she was taken to heaven. Or it could mean she, she died in the normal sense and then was raised up. We're not sure. Um, either way, it seems unlikely that this is the literal place that that happened or that Joachim and Anna are literally buried there. Um, but, you know, it's a place to pray, uh, to honor Mary and the saints, and to remember this thing that happened, even if perhaps it's not the uh, literal, actual place. Um, just a little fun aside, in that same courtyard, there was... like a five foot high gate that was open just into the stone wall with the sound of water coming out of it and 
who wouldn't be curious about that? So, having some time, having gotten a little bit ahead of the group looking at things, I went down there, turned my phone flashlight on, and went about, I don't know, 60, 70 feet back under, you know, under the stone hillside, basically, under you know, streets and whatever else there was, and it was, of course, the, you know, the drain, the, you know, rain drain, the sewer, uh, not like, you know, sanitary sewer, not like toilet stuff, but just, you know, water drain, and went down to further passages under the city, and sure was tempting to keep looking down there, but I had neither proper flashlight, uh, nor time, nor anybody who knew where I was, so I didn't go down there, but man, it would have been neat to see, you know, how far that went and where you ended up. So after that, we went up to the top of the Mount of Olives. So we were down in the the Garden of Gethsemane and these other two places, this uh, grotto and the, quote, Tomb of Mary, are down in the Kidron Valley, which is the valley uh, between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. So suppose you're on the Temple Mount, which has the Dome of the Rock on it now, the the Muslim uh, shrine. If you would look to the east, I think, you would look down the valley and then back up to the Mount of Olives. So we went to the very top of the Mount of Olives where there is a, um, now it's technically a mosque, though it's not used as that. It's uh, formerly a Church of the Assumption, uh, where it's believed that, Ascension rather, where it's believed that uh, Jesus ascended into heaven from that spot. Remember, after the resurrection, he stays with the apostles for some time longer that eventually ascends into heaven. Now, this one, well, at first glance, there's a Byzantine church built over and around it. You can see the ruins of that there still, which is usually a good sign that it's the authentic location. However, in this case, it's known that there were about 40 plausible, you know, even with churches on them, locations, claimed locations of the Ascension. So maybe, probably not, just statistically, it might be, um, but there's not a really good argument for it. There was a church there for that name, and usually when there's a church, you know, an ancient Byzantine church there, um, it's accompanied by other archaeological details that support that claim, you know, things like the the tomb and other stuff uh, of Christ have lots of other corroborating details. This one, not so much. It has a rock that looks like it has a footprint in it, but that's kind of it. Lord forgive me if it really is the place that I'm being doubtful, but it it's not, you know, given that there were so many so many claimed locations and there's not a lot of evidence pointing to this, you know, scripture doesn't give a lot of details about that scene that helps identify it. So, you know, maybe, but it still is a good place to pray with that event, even if it's not the literal place. Two blocks away from that is a church called the Paternoster, Our Father. And it's a place where uh, the Lord gave the Our Father to the apostles. Now, this one's uh, much more certain. I don't remember the um, details what makes it certain, except for the fact that uh, St. Helen, mother of Constantine, built a church here uh, very early on, uh, 327, I think. So that's a pretty good sign. Again, not proof, but I think this this site has other details with it that uh, make that a more valid claim. And it also is uh, thought to be probably the spot of the ascension. Jesus did like to go back to the same places over and over again. 
Uh, so if this is where the Our Father was given, it wouldn't be a surprise if he went back there uh, to, uh, you know, he gave the perfect prayer there. So maybe it's a good place to uh, send off the apostles on their mission and say, you know, say goodbye to them in an earthly way. It's a beautiful church regardless, at least the grounds of it. I didn't actually go in the sanctuary. I'm in and around it. Of course, you know, there's the current, more modern church, but then there's the ruins and so forth, lots of walls. Um, exteriorly, probably was a much bigger uh, monastic type church before. But along all the walls, there are, I believe, 166 languages of the Our Father written out. So, you know, big uh, tile plaques on the wall of the Our Father in 166 languages. So, you know, one could spend a long time walking around trying to figure out what they all figure out what they all are. Um, from an English speaker's standpoint, it's a bit more difficult because the church is owned by the French. And so the names of all of the languages are the French version of the names, which most of them are still recognizable. But like the English one is said, says angles on the top, which is what the French would call English. So it's a bit dicier for an English speaker to know the names of other languages in French. Regardless, next to it is a honestly beautiful garden. It's kind of maybe an Italian style garden, not sure, with olive trees, of course, but interspersed with various um, desert type plants, cactuses and other uh, succulent, spiky, uh, colorful type things, which those are all the kind of plants that I own. So, uh, well, not an olive tree yet, hopefully when I get back, but went for a walk out there. It's compared to the hustle and bustle of tour guide led areas and lots of people around in small little spaces. It's actually nice to go for a walk in a uh, large, quiet, peaceful garden by oneself. Just sort of enjoyed the uh, birds chirping in the trees and a view of the city, uh, but not interrupted by having to follow a tour guide. Um, as I was walking towards the back on this sort of wide uh, iron rail lined gravel path, looking at the trees, came across a big heavy pine cone and I kicked it, hoping to get it, you know, a good kick on it, but it didn't, it didn't go. It was really heavy and only rolled like five feet, which was disappointing. So I kicked it again, but I still couldn't get my toe under it and it didn't go very far. I thought, I like this pine cone. So I picked it up, kept it as a souvenir. Something about a stubborn pine cone that won't kick. I don't know. I liked it. So I like the garden too. I wanted some way to remember it. So now I have on my desk a fat, heavy pine cone that is from the garden of the Paternoster because, you know, souvenirs. After that, we went down the hill to the church, well, partly to the Jewish cemetery because there's a fantastic view of the city from there, uh, and then to the church of Dominus Flevit, which is the Lord wept. It's the place traditionally where uh, Jesus, uh, coming towards the city of Jerusalem, weeps over the city because it's not accepting him as the Messiah. And it's it's right on a line, you know, there's no like marking of the spot. Jesus' tears didn't you know puncture the ground and make marks. Um, but it makes sense for this to be the place because if you make a if you make a line from the Ascension Church through Dominus Flavit, you go right through Gethsemane and right to Mount Moriah, the uh, through the east gate of the temple, uh, right on line. Like, all of these important places are right on a line with each other, uh, symbolically connecting. Uh, the ascension, Jesus is weeping, his agony in the garden, 
and the Temple Mount, uh, the you know, former place of God's presence, uh, and the east gate of the temple where the Messiah is to come into the city. All of these things are linked together via this line. And so it makes sense that that be the place where he would stop. So it's, it commemorates uh, that moment in scripture. Going down from Dominus Flevit, which is, by the way, a church shaped like a teardrop because Christ weeping. So it commemorates the tears that he shed over the city. Uh, we go down from the hill from there. Uh, we caught our bus and now went up the hill that the Temple Mount is on to Mount Zion. So opposite the Kidron Valley from the Mount of Olives. And we go up there to see the upper room. That is the place where the Last Supper and Pentecost happened. Now, comma, the upper room, according to the signage, is kind of silly. Now, you might think it's odd to say that the place where Pentecost and the Last Supper happened is silly, but hear me out. So if you follow the signs on Mount Zion, which is a totally built-up area, you know, it's all buildings, it's not you know, grassy mountaintop or anything. If you follow the signs to the Last Supper room, whatever it's called, it's probably called Upper Room on the signs, you come to a Crusader-era building on the second floor. Now, there's something a bit wrong with that, because the Last Supper didn't happen in a room built 12 centuries after the Last Supper happened. Doesn't doesn't make sense. Uh, now, you can say that, well, maybe this is built like over the site of that, but there's no supporting evidence for that. It's kind of a flimsy uh, assertion that this is the Last Supper place. Uh, likewise, there's also labeled nearby uh, King David's tomb, which is totally a red herring because it, it didn't exist there until, uh, what, the 1940s, I think, 1950s. Uh, basically, because of some political things happening, uh, the Jews didn't have access to sort of the real location of, of David's tomb in Bethlehem, and so they kind of named this place David's tomb so they could have some place to go and sort of hold the honor of King David. Um, but it's, you know, if you go there now, it's ill-maintained and, you know, just sort of there as a token gesture, which, you know, you'd think King David being really important in Jewish culture, Jewish history, if they really believed that that was the place, they'd take a little bit better care of it. But they don't, which sort of shows that it's not. Even the Jews don't think that's what that actually is. Likewise with this upper room place. I mean, it's possible that it was nearby there, but, I mean, probably not. However, something else is nearby that's a lot more probable. So if you go um, south, I think, of that, past the Dormition Abbey, which we'll get to in a minute, you come to a moderately sized grassy field with a strange concrete and metal cage built over a hole in the ground. It looks like someone took a you know metal storage container, but it's made of you know metal grating instead of solid side walls, and it's over a carved out hole in the ground. And in this carved out hole in the ground, you have uh, some things that are very interesting. You have a set of stairs, you have a ritual washing bath, you have some tunnels and some altars, and when it was first opened, first sort of discovered, they found some rather suggestive, you know, theological carvings down there. 
basically, it looks like it could be, it might be, almost kind of hope it is, the actual place of the upper room where the Last Supper happened. Now, it's a bit confusing because we call it the, it, you know, refer to it as the upper room, yet it's in the ground. But one has to remember that 20 centuries ago, the ground level was lower than it is now. So, uh, what looks like, at first glance, you know, things carved into the bedrock is actually carved, assembled stone blocks. But the ground around it has, you know, over time been built up through rain and sediment and things like that. Um, so, it, it's a bit misleading. But, um, in the, when this was first opened, curious things were found down there that point to this being the actual place of the last of the actual upper room, uh, which is especially sort of curious given that the as-labeled upper room is obviously nonsense. Um, but because of weird political things, the Greek Orthodox own this site, and they probably even really think that this is what it might be. Otherwise, why would they protect it and care about it? Or why would they you know, keep it under lock and key? But they don't have seem to have any motivation to develop it. Um, and it's kind of it's being encroached by uh, Jews buying property around it. So it's in a bit of a precarious situation. And um, it, it's a very uh, odd thing that this possibly very important site is somewhat neglected like this um, because if it is the place of the last supper the institution of the eucharist and pentecost we sure want to know about that and make it a real thing and make it a place that the pilgrims can come because wouldn't that be important um so it's a bit odd that it's not you know any more established but you know what even if it's not that it's still a first century something more or less lying open to the air and honestly getting trash and stuff in it uh, and threatened to be covered up by non-Christians. So you'd think something should happen. So if you're a millionaire who wants to contribute to something in the Holy Land, uh, talk to Hector Molina, who would love to get you set up and maybe help something go with this. But it's a very uh, fascinating site. Um, you know, obviously unable to do much else there. We did uh, pray a little bit. Uh, one guy looked up the ordination rite, and we renewed our priestly promises didn't do them again, like getting rebaptized or anything, but we just renewed our promises um, and then uh, prayed a decade of the rosary and moved along our way. Maybe it's nothing. Maybe the Last Supper happened somewhere else, but wouldn't it be fascinating? Wouldn't it be uh, extraordinarily special to see this site uh, you know, go from rocky hole in the ground to uh, something beautiful and, and well-acknowledged? Anyways, next we went to Dormition Abbey, uh, next somewhat next door, which is uh, a church. I think just commemorating, uh, commemorating you know, Mary being assumed ascend, assumed into heaven. Um, perhaps they claim it as the place where that event actually occurred. Um, I'm not sure. Um, beautiful chapel run by uh, a German Benedictine monastery. It's very Benedictine side. Benedictine friends, if you're listening, I prayed for you there because it's a Benedictine house. Next, we went to Caiaphas's house in the church of Peter Gallicantus. Uh, Caiaphas, the high priest who questioned and um, you know held Jesus until he was sent to Pontius Pilate and back and then had him crucified. And so uh, it's also the, 
the name Peter Galicantus was a reference to uh, St. Peter coming into the courtyard, which of course you can go to, and lying to the slave girls and the soldiers that he didn't know who Jesus was, to the cock crows two or three times, which gospel you read, and then Peter realizes his betrayal and goes out and weeps, uh, like while at the same time Christ is being held in the dungeon in the basement because the high priest being a mob boss type character, of course, had a dungeon in the basement of his house. And so uh, it commemorates sort of both of those things, though Peter's act was bad, he later repents. And of course, any place that the Lord uh, suffered is a place of veneration. So you have these, uh, this church built over Caiaphas's house. Uh, but it's, our guide gave us something that I'd never heard of before, or something I never thought about. And that was, did it, was it really a rooster that crowed three times? You know, of course, we always think of it is, and that makes sense. You know, some rooster before dawn was crowing. But there's another explanation that he gave that is plausible because he says there shouldn't have been any chickens, any roosters in Jerusalem uh, because of the Jewish purity laws and, you know, chicken manure is very impure. And so I guess they changed the requirements later. But he says until until the year, I think, what did he say? 145 or 150 there weren't chickens allowed in Jerusalem so it can't have been a rooster crowing in the year 33 AD what do you think what he claims that it is is that when scripture says a rooster crowed or a cock crowed three times it's actually a way of referring to what is it the basically the temple crier so there would be somebody who would go to the edge of the temple, which is very nearby, and uh, shout out that it was time to come to dawn prayer. Uh, very similar to what the Muslims do now with their five times a day they're called to prayer. So there would be a shout from the walls of the temple, maybe singing of some sort, uh, calling the people to prayer. And so his assertion was that this cock crowing is really uh, the temple crier in the you know the 30 minutes before dawn as they were required to do calling out people to prayer and so when peter heard that that is what the lord was referring to that made him realize his denial either way you know no way to prove whether that's true or not um maybe there was a rooster in, in jerusalem when there shouldn't have been one who knows um, but that's uh, a possible interpretation of the cock crowed he did point out that in scripture usually the that word is around is in brackets uh, which i think hints at an unusual translation perhaps maybe it does mean uh, crier anyways after that we go back to the hotel with, which was great relief especially because when i came back to the hotel i moved some papers on my desk and found my little journal that i've been missing throughout most of the day and if you know me you know that uh, i would be very sad to lose my little moleskin journal uh, this was in fact an older one that i had have brought with me because it has prayers and things that I haven't copied to the new one yet. And so I thought, well, crap, I couldn't find it this morning. And I thought, oh no, I've dropped it in the Holy Sepulchre somewhere. It's never coming back because, you know, thousands and thousands of people go through every day. Who knows where I might've dropped it. I'll never see it again. I've never lost one before. And that would be, you know, like a year and a half of things I'd written down gone. However, praise be to God. It was actually just here the whole time. So that would have been some stress throughout the day that was uh, 
very graciously relieved. Uh, later after that, I did some writing, did wrote the notes for this, and then actually went back to the city, went back to the old city of Jerusalem, uh, to the Holy Sepulchre and the shops all around it there. Um, a, to finish some prayers, also B, to um, enjoy the street vendors or the, you know, the, the market setting. I, I, I didn't buy anything, but I do just enjoy the streets packed with stuff spilling out of shops. It's, you know, that old Middle Eastern market kind of set up, and it's just fun to walk through, honestly. Um, so I went and did that. I, I had um, offered some of my pilgrimage prayers at the uh, Church of the Passion, in, in the Church by Gethsemane, so at that rock there that Christ wept upon. I offered some prayers there. I offered some other prayers uh, at the uh, over the cistern where the Lord was kept the dungeon in Caiaphas's house, but then I finished offering my other prayers for the day uh, out on let's see in the chapel on top of Calvary, and then prayed a rosary at a Marian chapel in the back of the church, um, and kind of rounded out uh, the day there at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Because if you have access to the holiest sites in Christendom. You know, you maximize your time there, right? So after that, came back to the hotel again and had a nice long dinner with the brother priest and the cardinal who's with us and uh, came back to the room here. And then, as I said, spent like two and a half hours reading Wikipedia about the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So now I know lots of things about it, or at least have lots of things to look more about. Um, I learned about several other like monasteries built into the walls and chapels that I hadn't seen yet and um, you can't get to them without special permission, but they're there now. I know about them. Um, so it's such a fascinating place, but the time has come to end this day, uh, both to end this recording and to go to bed. So hope that was, uh, enjoyable. I want to keep learning more. And I hope you do too. God bless one more day. See y'all soon. Bye. Wait, JK just remembered some more things. So, I was thinking about yesterday I talked about I don't know what you do if you're a Protestant coming to the Holy Land and the church of your denomination is not on a holy site and is empty and quiet. I don't know what you do with that. But then I got to thinking about it. Coming on pilgrimage is a Catholic thing to do no matter what. If you're coming to visit holy sites because it is the place where the thing happened, that very act itself is the opposite of a Protestant mentality. Because think about it, most Protestant churches are not much more than, you know, whitewashed meeting halls, right? It's not, for them, it's not about the place, it's about just the message. So, what are the, why, why would they even come to a holy place, right? Now, the desire to come to somewhere special where a thing happened is a part of human experience. It's part of the natural way that we are. And so it's why Catholic churches are always supposed to be beautiful and special places of prayer because that's part of the human experience. That's how, that's how we are as human beings. We like to you know touch the place, smell the, smell the things, be present to what's going on. And so that's why Catholic churches are the way that they are. But Protestant churches, they've rejected that and they said, no, 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 it's just about, just about hearing the word, nothing else going on. But when you come to visit the holy places because they are the holy places, 
you're getting into that Catholic mentality, that, that richness of worldview where things are special because they are the special thing that happened there. And so that's just struck me yesterday, later in the day that uh, just the very act of going to visit holy places on purpose is opposite from the Protestant way of looking at things. So again, I don't know what you do if you're a Protestant, if you're a committed Protestant coming to the Holy Land. I don't see how you go away without at least a little bit of tinge of wonder of like, well, what am I missing out on? Also here, I've noticed a surprising amount of Spanish. Like even the street vendors speak to people in Spanish sometimes, which maybe I'm just here at a week when like Spain had a discount. I don't know. Maybe Mexico got cheap tickets to Israel for some reason, but I just thought that was really odd. Uh, One more little thing. Um, Well, two things. One, it wouldn't be a trip to the Holy Sepulchre without a Greek priest yelling at somebody. Um, Something minuscule, but apparently offensive. He came by and this poor lady, I thought it was fine, but apparently she was deeply troubling and he scolded her and helped her stand up to stop doing things she was doing. Um, she was just sitting where she shouldn't be sitting, I guess. He helped her up and then kept yelling at her. I, I don't know. It's just a weird cultural difference that doesn't make sense, at least to Americans. It's like, oh, the love, you know, the joy of the resurrection. So I'm going to yell at you. I don't know. Um, and then just a little bit of other reverence in the church, in the, in the chapel on Cal- Calvary. I had, uh, sat down to write something and propped my foot up one over the other, inadvertently putting the bottom of my shoe towards Calvary, which in Eastern tradition, that's very offensive. And a little old lady came by and very kindly just knocked my foot down to say like, Hey, don't do that. You know? Just like if somebody were wearing a hat in church, I would be like, hey, take your hat off. It was that kind of like, you know, I'm not mad at you, but don't do that kind of thing. Um, which is one of those things that in the West, we don't, that wouldn't be offensive to us. But in that, in the Eastern culture, Eastern Christian culture, that's something you definitely don't do. And so just a little moment of like, oh, okay. Her reverence is different than mine, but in a certain sense, uh, thank you for that. Um, so just a few more anecdotes, a few more little details that uh, continue to make the Holy Land and the Holy Sepulchre such an interesting and fascinating place. All right, now that's really in it. That's really all of it. Bye.